0: There obviously isn't much love lost between the king's two sons. Uh, we, we just wish, don't we, that these two princes, these two brothers could be reconciled. Uh, we don't know uh, how much more we can take of the stories of what they get up to behind closed doors uh, and, and in which the whole thing, there's no mention of God. It's as if God is completely forgotten. And I'm not talking about William and Harry, I'm talking about Amnon and Absalom. The first verse of the chapter, it mentions one brother, and then their sister, then the other brother. If it was a movie poster here, Tamar would be in the middle, uh, standing between the two brothers. And we also have in this chapter a supporting cast as well, as these two princes and their sister... Uh, We have Jonadab, the scheming cousin, and David, the weak father. And we're going to look tonight at each of the human characters in turn. And then we're going to finish by asking where God is in all this. And firstly tonight we'll look at at Amnon. uh, And with Amnon we see passion without love. Passion without love. Amnon is David's firstborn son. Uh, we read of his birth back in chapter 3, verse 2. But this chapter is the only record we have of what Amnon actually does with his life. And it is a record of sin and death. Uh, may the record of our lives, by God's grace, be different. Amnon is a man clearly driven by his passions. He's not particularly gifted in the brains department. Uh, For that, he he relies on his scheming cousin, Jonadab. Uh, But instead, what what drives him, what motivates him is lust. And Amnon is a terrible and vivid picture of what longing for something that God hasn't given us will do to us. uh, And what it will do to those around us. Whether that is sexual lust as it is with Amnon, something that's wrong in and of itself. Or whether it's a des- desire for something else which we, we think we should have and, and which, which might be okay in and of itself. But though God in his wisdom has given it to others, he hasn't given it to us. Maybe it's someone else's salary, someone else's house, someone else's family, someone else's job, someone else's influence. And being consumed with either of these sorts of longings, whether it's for something forbidden in and of itself or or whether it's something not forbidden uh, but which God hasn't given to us, it it will leave us tormented. We can be so convinced that we need something uh, that, that God hasn't given us that we torment ourselves. Uh, and Satan w- would love us to be tormented by these things he comes to us like, like Jonadab in, in, in verse 4 and says oh, oh, oh son of the king uh, 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 and, and he says God is, is, is preventing you from having something that will make you happy uh, so Amnon here is tormented uh, and what is tormenting him? Well, it's something that is doubly wrong. It's doubly wrong. First, it is lust. uh, Wrong in and of itself. And secondly, it's lust for his sister or his half-sister. One of the negatives about King David is that he had many wives, uh, eight of whom are named in Scripture, but we're told there were more. And so Amnon and Tamar both have the same father, uh, but we can take it that they had different mothers. So the same father, David, different mothers. For the two of them to marry would have been forbidden by God's law, uh, set out in Leviticus 18. So just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Amnon desires a forbidden fruit. He desires something that is off limits to him according to God's law. And while he might think that what he feels is love, it's actually lust. And that lust is eating away at him. It's it's destroying him just as it does to many today. Look at that description again in verse 14. O son of the king. Uh, and Jonadad isn't flattering his cousin there. He, he's speaking, speaking truth. Amnon was the, the son of the king. He, he was David's oldest son in fact. He was no spare royal. Uh, by rights he should have been next in line to the throne. But lust destroys him. And how many men, how many Christian men does lust destroy? Not just men, but particularly men who who are meant to live as sons of the king, but instead are consumed by lust. But they don't kill that sin and instead that sin kills them. And it takes away any usefulness they might have had in the kingdom of God. But well, perhaps someone will say, well, well verse 1 uses the word love, the end of the chapter as well talks about love. So, so how can we say this isn't really love, it says, it uses the word love. But it is important in the Bible to look at a word and not, not simply ignore the context of the sentence in which it comes. And the word love is actually a great example of that. Most people who've been around churches for a while have probably heard the word agape. It's one of the the Greek words for love used in the New Testament. And people are often told that agape is a a special kind of Christian love, a, a kind of selfless love. And yes, the word agape is used for selfless Christian love, but it's also used for the apostate Demas who Paul says, Demas, in love, agape with this present world has deserted me. Uh, The Bible uses words as part of sentences. And often uh, you need the rest of the sentence uh, to know in what way a specific word is being used. And so that's all to say, although the word love is used in verse 1, and from Amnon's perspective, that's what he might think it is. It's clear from the rest of the story that this is actually lust. What is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. To quote another 13th chapter of a biblical book, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 13, Love does not insist on its own way. But here Amnon does exactly that. He he does insist on his own way. He, he ignores Tamar's pleas. He is determined to have her and so he forces himself on her. And once he's used her, he throws her aside. And we're told in verse 15 that the love with the or the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her and it is a horrible, horrible crime and it is one which the writer wants us to see through Tamar's eyes as well as Amnon's so having looked at Amnon and his lust instead of love we we come to Tamar and we see shame without redress shame without redress or, or shame without justice there are three Tamars in the Bible The Tamar in this passage is the middle one. Uh, The the final Tamar is Absalom's daughter. Uh, We'll read about her in verse 27 of the next chapter. Uh, So she she seems to have been named after her aunt Absalom would have a daughter who who he would name Tamar after his sister. But but the first Tamar, like this Tamar, uh, they are both Badly treated by sexually unrestrained men. Uh, we meet the first Tamar in the middle of the Joseph story, uh, which we looked at in our evening services last year. Uh, there are a lot of connections between the two stories. And I think that's just interesting to, to, to notice. Uh, it, it seems that it's not accidental For a start, what is Joseph best known for? Uh, Well, well, he's best known for his multicoloured coat, his robe of many colours. And that type of robe is only mentioned one other place in the Bible, and it's right here. Uh, It's translated here in verse 18 as a robe of long sleeves, though it's the same word. Uh, And many versions, or some versions at least, do translate it here as well as a robe of many colours. So, that's the first connection with the Joseph story, other than the name Tamar occurring in both places. In both cases, the special robe ends up being destroyed. Joseph's robe is dipped in blood by his brothers. Here, Tamar tears her own robe in her grief. There's also a connection in that Amnon in this story acts a bit like Potiphar's wife who lusts after Joseph. Potiphar's wife says to to Joseph, lie with me. And here Amnon says the same words to Tamar. By the end of the, the Potiphar story, Potiphar's wife has turned against Joseph just like Amnon turns against Tamar here. And Joseph ends that episode of his life in prison Uh, And Tamar is not much better off here. She ends up a a desolate or devastated woman in her brother's house. The Joseph story uh, rather suddenly cuts to to, uh, that, that episode where Joseph's brother Judah treats the other Tamar badly. She is his daughter-in-law. Her husband had died and Judah promised that he would give her in marriage to his third son when he grew up. But he didn't. And so the first Tamar ends up pretending to be a prostitute and becoming pregnant by her father-in-law. Her father-in-law Judah, a man who can't control his sexual appetites just like Amnon. Are these connections meant to tell us anything? Well, it would seem to be a way of contrasting David with Joseph on the one hand, Joseph who, who remains sexually pure under strong temptation, in contrast with David who sinned with Bathsheba. And if David is contrasted to Joseph, he's, he's compared to Judah. In both cases, the two Tamars end up being hurt by the sin of their father or father-in-law. Judah directly sins against his daughter-in-law Tamar, whereas David indirectly sins against his daughter Tamar in that the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba impact his family. So all that is perhaps in our mind as we read the story of this second Tamar. David's sin is looming large over this chapter. But she of of course is oblivious as to what's about to happen. She's asked to come in and make food for her ill half-brother. She makes the food. He sends everyone out. He asks her to bring the food into his bedroom And when she comes in, he grabs her. And it wouldn't have taken long for the feelings of terror to surge through her. He asks her to do something that was wrong on so many levels. She says no. In desperation, she begs him to to let her speak to King David about it not that that David I think would have agreed to this but she's just desperately clutching at straws trying to say anything to make him stop but he doesn't listen and in a matter of minutes Tamar's whole life is in tatters she went along to do a good deed and she finds herself trapped ignored raped despised, banished and ruined. Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He wouldn't listen to her when she told him to stop and he wouldn't listen to her when she begged him not to send her away. Amnon consistently refused to listen to Tamar but we must listen to her. In order to see the seriousness of what's been done to her in order to see where indulging sexual sin can lead and because Tamar's story is shared by many it wouldn't take a big gathering of people for Tamar's story to be shared by some present and for this story to be not just an ugly thing to read about, but something that, that is painfully close to home. Certainly there are, are many many women like that around us, and again, not just women but but many women. So does god 's word have anything to say to victims of sexual sin like Tamar? Does God's word of any hope to bring in the midst of a, a, a desperately sad situation like this? Well, for a start, the Bible is a book that doesn't ignore sexual violence against women. Other religions encourage men to treat women as objects. Islam promises virgins as a reward for men in paradise. Mormonism has a very ambiguous uh, relationship to polygamy. But how different God's word is. How different the true religion is compared to false religions. The Bible also points hurting people to a better father than Tamar had. A better brother than Tamar had. And a better king than David was... Tamar's father, David, as we'll see shortly, he doesn't do anything when he hears what has happened here. He, he's very angry, but he doesn't actually do anything. <coughs> How different our heavenly father, who will not turn a blind eye to sin, but one day will put all wrongs to rights. Tamar's brother, Absalom, he, he tells her not to take it to heart. Now, he doesn't take his own advice. He does take it to heart, but he's no comfort to her. How different your elder brother, Jesus Christ. He knows what it is to be put to shame, and you can run to him. In fact, surely Jesus is the ultimate answer to Tamar's question in verse 13. When she's desperately trying to talk Amnon out of doing what he's about to do, she says, verse 13, As for me, where could I carry my shame? It's a a powerful question, isn't it? Where could I carry my shame? And When Tamar talks about shame, we need to be clear that she had done nothing to be ashamed of. She is the innocent party here. She is the victim she has done nothing of which she needs to be ashamed. But, but still she knows that if Amnon does what he wants to do, she will be left with this overwhelming sense of shame because he will have put her to shame. And so she asks, where will I carry my shame? She means that as a rhetorical question. But surely today we know of somewhere she could carry her shame to. Or someone... She could carry her shame to, as can anyone in her position, and that is to Jesus, because he was put to shame for us. Like Tamar, he hadn't done anything shameful, but others did shameful things to him. And he went through all that for us. He bore our shame. So that the words of Psalm 25 might be true of us. Indeed, none who wait for him shall be put to shame. Or, as Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who believes in him will be put to shame. Where could I carry my shame? As Tamar looks around, she doesn't see anyone she can carry her shame to. But she can take it to Jesus. And Amnon could have done the same with, with the, his deserved shame that he should have felt if only he had repented and believed. There is hope in the gospel for the shame brought about by those who commit sexual sin, as well as the, the undeserved shame felt by those who are the victims of it. So, our shame without redress, shame without justice. Thirdly, and a bit more briefly, we see Jonadab, wisdom without principle. Wisdom without principle. Amnon has committed a crime for which he will be murdered before too long. Tamar's hopes and dreams for the future are ruined in an instant. And who's behind it all? Humanly speaking, who facilitated it all? Well, it's Jonadab. He is one of these snake-like characters who always comes out of things unscathed. He does the whispering. He pulls the strings in the background, but he doesn't get his hands dirty. And at the end of the story, he's still there in verse 35, reassuring David. Amnon is dead. Tamar is a desolate woman. But ever the consummate politician, Jonadab has emerged unscathed. I've called him snake-like. And he's described in verse 3 as a very crafty man. Just like the snake in Genesis 3 is described as more crafty than any other beast of the field. And someone has said that Jonadab is perhaps the most dangerous man in the whole fiasco. Jonadab is perhaps the most dangerous man in the whole fiasco. Boys and girls it's, it's good to to know things and know information but but Satan knows a lot of things, but he doesn't love God and so we need to, to it's good to know things but it, but it is, it is most important to love God so that we we do the right things with what we know. Why is Jonadab the, the most dangerous man perhaps in this whole story? Even though he doesn't lay a finger on anyone? Well, because he is skill without scruple, wisdom without ethics, and insight without integrity. Skill without scruple, wisdom without ethics, and insight without integrity. There's an anecdote about the, the Vicar of Bray, uh, a character who lived in the 1500s, uh, whether it was really just one man or, or a, a couple of people are, are put together in what became a song. Uh, but but the, the Vicar of Bray, uh, apparently he, he was a, a, a vicar in England. He was Catholic under Henry VIII. He was Protestant under Edward VI. He was Catholic again under Queen Mary and then a Protestant again in the reign of Queen Anne or Queen Elizabeth. Someone criticised him for it and, and the vicar replied, I can't help it if I change my religion because I keep to my principle, which is to live and die, vicar of Bray. He needed to stay in his job. He wanted to live and die in that job and he would change his religion every year if he had to. And it's the same with Jonadab. He's loyal to who he needs to be loyal to uh, for as long as it suits his own purposes. And there is a a warning for us in him. Uh, Firstly, a warning not to listen to men like this, not to, to listen to worldly wisdom as Amnon does. Some might appear smart. They might be able to get things done. But, but, but listening to them is bad news if they're not basing what they say on God's word. There's a warning not to listen to men like, like Jonadab, but there's also a warning not to be a, a man or a woman like, like Jonadab. Because the more gifts God has given us, the greater damage we can do if we don't use them rightly and humbly. The more gifts God has given us, the greater damage we can do. John Calvin says here, It all warns us to pray that if God has given us some prudence, he would add integrity and sincerity, so that we might keep ourselves from craftiness. If God has given us prudence, we need also to pray for integrity and sincerity. And D. Ralph Davis comments, In the church, those with the greatest gifts pose the gravest threat, for unless their gifts are wrapped in godliness, they multiply disaster among Christ's flock. In the church, those with the greatest gifts pose the gravest threat. So that is Jonadab, Wisdom Without Principle fourthly we see David David anger without justice anger without justice David heard about all these things and was very angry verse 21 full stop it was good that David was angry but that's all and that is bad And David becomes the third father in the the book of, of Samuel, originally all one book. The third father to ignore the sin of his sons. The first was Eli, and then there's Samuel himself, and now David. All three of them believers, all three of them saved men. And yet they had sons who didn't follow in their footsteps, and they turned a blind eye to the public sins of those sons. Uh, and both, both there with, with Eli and Samuel and, and here uh, with, with David, there are terrible consequences to ignoring the sins of children. Uh, as a result of David uh, covering his eyes and his ears, Amnon isn't held accountable. Tamar, Tamar receives no justice and Absalom is encouraged in a sense to take matters into his own hands. So why doesn't David do anything? Well again his sin with Bathsheba surely casts a shadow over this chapter. David has sinned sexually and committed murder. And in this chapter one of his sons sins sexually and the other commits murder. And Amnon's sin isn't a million miles away from David's. David didn't have to physically grab Bathsheba but could she realistically have said no to the king? Even if there isn't that element at all to it, it's certainly sexual sin mirrored in Amnon. Uh, and so David's moral authority to address the sexual sin of his son is compromised. It's no excuse for his silence, but what a warning to those of us who are parents that our sins really can strip away a sense of our moral authority if we do have to speak to our children about something uh, particularly thinking grown-up children now all parents sin all parents feel all children realize sooner or later that their parents aren't perfect boys and girls in case you haven't realized your your parents aren't perfect your your parents are sinners but if there is a radical disconnect between what we say and how we live, well, yes, our children should still listen to us, but it makes it very easy for them not to. If they hear us saying things in public and doing very different things in private. It makes it very, very easy for them not to listen. And, and maybe for us to think, well, there's no, there's, there's no point even trying. Uh, and perhaps that's what David thinks here. David, both as king king, uh, and as Amnon's father should have acted, but he didn't. And David's silence, his refusal to deal with what has happened, eventually leads to Amnon's death because Absalom just takes things into his own hands. And by ignoring Amnon's sin, David is not loving his son After David's own sin, God had sent the prophet Nathan to him. It hadn't been a pleasant experience, but it had led to David's repentance. But by David not intervening, Amnon was left in his sin. And he didn't repent. And one old commentator says, God punished what David would not correct. God punished what David would not correct. Think about that for our children it may be that there's something that either we will correct it or if we feel to correct it god will punish it either way if we really love our children we will correct them boys and girls your parents discipline you because they love you and if you come across boys and girls who are mean and who are nasty, it may well because they, they don't have parents who, who don't who, they don't have parents who will tell them what is right and wrong. Proverbs 13 24 Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. So in David we see anger without justice. The final human character that we want to look at just briefly uh, before asking and closing what God is doing here is Absalom. Uh, As I've said, we will be be seeing lots more of Absalom in the coming weeks, but, but just very briefly, what do we learn from him here? Well, Absalom is a picture of hatred without restraint. Hatred without restraint. Absalom certainly subscribed to the idea that revenge is a dish best served cold. Two whole years pass. It it looks perhaps like he's ready to let it go. Uh, That he'll take his cue from his father and just leave it. Yet the thought of ignoring what's been done to his sister doesn't cross Absalom's mind. For those two years, as Jonadab tells David at the end of the chapter, he has been planning, waiting, calculating. And then the moment arrives and he executes his plan. It is a horrible echo, an ugly parody of Joshua's words in Joshua 1 verse 9. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant, verse 28. It's almost word for word what Joshua had said to the people. And Amnon is struck down. And we read that and we we, we think, Boy, isn't Absalom a cold, calculating killer? And he is. But he's maybe not as different from us as we might think. Because what were we like before we were Christians? Paul reminds us in Titus 3.3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. (coughs) For most of us, that hatred hasn't spilled over into actual murder. But Jesus says that whoever hates his brother will be liable to judgment, So whether we have done the same deed as Absalom or not, we all share his nature. And our only hope is is what Paul goes on to say in the next verse. Our only hope is in the goodness and loving kindness of God who saves us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So those are the five human characters in the story. Amnon the abuser, Tamar the victim, Jonadab the schemer, David the weak father and Absalom the revenge taker. And if we only had the human characters to look at, I think we'd despair. Uh, As many people do because this is the sort of world people look out and see when, when they don't reckon about God all we could do with this chapter is weep we weep with Tamar, but also weep over the the lack of righteousness we see in all the other characters but one very important question we haven't asked yet is where is god in all this because he's not mentioned in the chapter at all so what is god doing in all this is he doing anything well god is fulfilling his word Nathan had told David, chapter 12, verse 10, The sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David had been told, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And so what's happening in this chapter? As unpleasant as these events are, God is fulfilling his word of judgment against David's house. God may not be mentioned in this chapter, but he's not absent. And perhaps the biggest thing you need reminded of tonight is that even if God seems utterly silent, he is still at work bringing his word to pass. Even if God seems utterly silent, he is still at work. Just think of the book of Esther, no mention of God, and yet he is at work in a tremendous way. And sometimes faith is it's just believing that we see it in scripture and we need to believe it in our own lives so what is god doing in this chapter he's not doing nothing he's doing exactly what he said he would people might read this chapter and say what an absolute mess God is clearly not at work here but, but we read it and we remember what God has said we'll do and, and we say well, well God, is, God is clearly at work here because exactly what he has said is coming to pass. It's not pleasant but it shows the seriousness of sin and David's sin, not, not just the sin of this chapter. Perhaps we read the account of David and Bathsheba and we think that he got off lightly But look at what David has unleashed on his family. And this is only the beginning. Uh, This isn't the the first son who will be killed uh, before David. Surely this chapter should cause us to hate sin and flee from it. And and pray that, that we would not have our sins reflected in the lives of our children as David did in his And then, just as we close tonight, surely this chapter also leaves us longing for a better David, or a better son of David. Because we have been waiting for a son of David. Uh, The Lord uh, promised, chapter 7, promised David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So we're waiting for a son of David whose kingdom God will establish. But this chapter makes clear that it won't be Amnon, and it certainly won't be Absalom either. We're left longing for a better son of David. And where would he come from? Well, fast forward a thousand years. A blind beggar sits by the roadside. Maybe some of the boys and girls can guess the name of this blind beggar, Bartimaeus. And suddenly he begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And that son of David did. The true and better son of David had come at last. A son of David who would be merciful to the oppressed. And a son of David who who wouldn't ignore sin like David did. Nor would he be a, a revengeful, score settler like Absalom. But rather he would bear the sin of his people And he would execute true justice. And so the big question tonight is, do you know this true son of David? And if we know him, we rejoice. And in the midst of a world of oppression and violence, we point people to him. Amen. Well, we'll sing now about this son of David from Psalm 9, verses 4 to 7. Psalm 9 verses 4 to 7, how different this son of David, how different the the Lord's king is uh, to Absalom. Verse 4, all peoples will know that his judgment is right in the last line. Absalom's judgment was not right, it was vindictive, it was revenge, it was uh, without trial. How different Jesus is to Amnon in verse 5. The oppressed run to Jesus, not away from him. If Tamar could have gone away, she would have run as far and as fast away from Amnon as she could have. People would have ran from that son of David if he could, but but we run to the true son of David. Uh, Verse verse 6, The cry of the poor never fades from his ear. Amnon ignored Tamar's cries but with Jesus it is different and so verse 7 we rejoice in his salvation. So Psalm 9 verses 4 to 7 will stand and sing praise.